Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for April 23rd, 2009. A big welcome to our panel today. We've got Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey there. Mr. Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Hey, Jeff. We should say that's the award Pulitzer yeah, Prize winning Las Vegas Sun. That's right, and I wanted to Greetings. congratulations to the Sun for that. That's pretty pretty amazing. Or maybe people, is the wrong word, but it's people over here are pretty stoked. Uh, my participation in that is uh, exceptionally minimal, but I will uh, reflect in the ba- in the I will bask in the reflected glory. It's very 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 cool. Um, Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Oh, I am uh, sitting here polishing my Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> getting it all over me. <laughs> uh, my name's Hunter Hilligus, and I run RateVegas.com. And real quick before we jump in, uh, Vegas Podcast The Palooza 2, uh, those of you that were with us last year at the Palms in August, uh, we're going to do something similar this year. Uh, looks like October 17th is the date. And as far as other details, they are not yet available, but we will be sure to uh, share them as they are. Um, but uh, if you're interested in potentially coming out and checking that, out, checking that out, save the date for Vegas Podcast of Palooza. And if you enjoyed last year's three-show setup, um, you should be happy with this year's. So I'm not exactly sure how it's going to uh, end up be, uh, being set up, but I think it's safe to say that if you were a fan last time, you'll be into it this time. Um, I want to welcome our special guest, Mr. Bill Zender. So um, Bill has played many different roles in the gaming industry, from everything from uh, being a Nevada gaming control agent to a part owner of the Aladdin. Uh, he's doing, he now does some consulting and I'm sure other things. And he has published, uh, his book has been published. It's called Casinoology, um, a Huntington Press uh, publication. Welcome, Bill. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Hunter. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It's our it's our pleasure. So, uh, give us the uh, the five minute version of of your career. Did you w- was your first exposure to gaming at the uh, the in gaming control at the control board? No, no. Actually, I tell you the truth. I started out from the other side. I I uh, got I went to UNLV, got my degree in UNLV in hotel, and uh, decided I didn't really want to work for a living, so I became a blackjack dealer. And uh, I worked. I kind of worked up from there. I uh, uh, bounced around a couple of uh, gone properties, and I actually was the uh, hotel manager for the Ogden House, which was a little hotel behind there. So I had kind of like a, a wide uh, experience with Jackie. God, I don't know if you know Jackie at all, but he doesn't pay much, but he really works real well, and it's, it's a great learning, you know, uh, area. So that's how I got started. And how did you decide to get into control, into into, into the regulation side? Well, that's kind of funny. I I was at the Western Hotel, which is on 9th and Fremont Street. And, uh, I mean, it was uh, a good night there is when you only had to step over, like, one drunk to get in the door. <laughs> and for some for some reason, two of the gaming control agents used to frequent the, the, the bar down there. And they uh, we got talking. They said, why don't you put, you put an application in for the board? Well, I had I didn't have a background in law enforcement. I have nothing in law enforcement, you know. And so I put in my application, and I and I took my tests and passed those. I took the oral, passed it. And next thing I knew, I was a gaming control agent. Uh, I was a peace officer by statute. I had a gun in the car with a radio in it. Didn't know how to use either one of them. But uh, that's how I started out. Well, that's you know that's pretty amazing. But and then from there. Um, what happened next? 
Well, you know, one thing about the board, I, I enjoyed my time. I was there for two years. And I had a really good friend named Steve Forty, and I think anybody that knows gaming knows Steve. And I learned a lot from Steve on game protection, and I thought I brought a real good asset to the board, and it did. And it was it worked for about two years, and I just uh, uh, I just got bored with it. Uh, I moved, decided to get back into the industry, and uh, uh, ended up going back. Um, actually. Uh, I'll give you the, the brief portion. I went to the Matson for a while, and then I went to the um, I went to Desert Inn for a while. I came back to the Maxim's Casino Manager. I was at Valley's for a little bit. I went back to the Desert Inn as Asian Games Manager. Then I got a great offer to go into the Aladdin Hotel as a partner. That was in 1992 when uh, when Bell Atlantic had it. Uh, Genji Asuda had bought the uh, the hotel, and I believe it was in '87, and never made a payment on the place. It went into bankruptcy, and then we took it out of the bankruptcy in '92. Uh, so that that takes me right up to like the, you know the present time. Um, I also I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I also banked games in California for a while in the card rooms, and that was a that's an interesting experience to say the least. And uh, then I also had a chance to go back to school, so I, I got my master's degree in, in business. But uh, there you have it, right there. Now I'm doing consulting work. So I, now I have a question about the Aladdin. Uh, obviously, um, you know, its last uh, decade has been sort of has had some ups and downs. Um, the, the property, the new Aladdin, not sort of whatever it was uh, before it became Planet Hollywood, um, did you see that as uh, as something that, at the time, did you think that that was going to work out, or did you foresee its, inevit- its, uh, its conclusion? It, it, well, I'll tell you what, it, when the, and the landlord at the time was Jack Summers. And Jack wanted us to climb on board with him, and we really entertained that because I was with a group called uh, JMJ. It was originally set up by Joe Burt, the late Joe Burt, passed away in a motorcycle accident. Uh, Ronnie Wilson took over after after Joe passed away, and the group of us was five of us, kind of you know this you know used bailing wire and duct tape and kept it together and did a pretty good job, I thought. Uh, Jack Summers wanted us to go forward. Now Jack had bought it from Bell Atlantic, and. Uh, and he wanted to build this beautiful new Aladdin hotel. And to tell you the truth, I was one of the first partners of Bale. I just said, this is going to be a total disaster. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly how it turned out. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had more than their fair share of trouble. Uh, but, you know, hopefully uh, Planet Hollywood will, will work out for better or worse. Um, you know, you – sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, you were a guest on a podcast that uh, – that Dr. Dave here published uh, over on the UNLV podcast series, and um, for those listeners that haven't yet checked that out, I, I highly recommend it. We uh, have linked to it in the past, and I'll, I'll get another link up. But one of the things that I remember from that show, I believe, um, and hopefully I'm remembering this correctly, you were talking about um, about card counters, and basically, if I recall, you're basically saying you didn't really sweat them too much, um, and I think the ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, result was actually that you guys <laughs> did quite well with your blackjack games, and versus some of these other places that were uh, really, really sweating these folks. Is, is that correct? And, and is is that a philosophy that you uh, still believe in today? Yeah, and, and let me first say something. I had a lot of fun at that podcast. So thanks a lot, Dave, for inviting me. That that I really enjoyed myself. I I didn't know how that was going to go, and that was just a lot of fun. Uh, I'm glad get to back and. Um, you know, you're, you're a good host. Thanks. To get back, to, to get back on track, uh, the thing about it is over the years, see, I started out when in gaming, 
and decided I was going to learn all about the casino games. Um, and I got into card counting, and I actually played on a professional level on two different occasions, and then did some advantage play. So, so when I went into Aladdin in 92, when you're a part owner, there's a lot of things you can do that you can't do as an executive. And what, what first thing we did when we went in there is I went ahead and hit soft 17, which you didn't do on the strip. I mean, we did that across the board, had very little resistance. I, uh, on the six-deck games, I cut off 26 cards because, face it, anything more than 26 cards cutting off more than 26 cards is based on card counting paranoia. And I know that the time in motion, the more hands you get out, the more money you make. So we did that. We went in, filled out five and a half decks and cut off 26 in both that and on the double deck. I actually instituted where they used a, a second cut card to force the dealers to deal down that far in the double deck because they were breaking about halfway. If you didn't do that, you know, you, I wanted to take that option away from them. And so it worked out. I mean, the thing is, is that in five and a half years, giving probably juiciest games in, in the state of Nevada, uh, we still held real well compared to the rest of the state. We're holding up anywhere in the range of 15 to 17% on our blackjack games. Right now in Nevada on the Strip, they're only holding about 11. And one of the things about it, what time in motion means so much that it has a bigger effect on hold percentage in, in blackjack or in any game for that matter than anything else by far. It's unbelievable. Well, I, Bill, I do, but, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to ask Bill, and I, when you, what what accounts for the resistance of you know table games executives, casino executives on the strip? Why are they so resistant to um, you know just just taking that advice and making sure that all, you know, the, the extra time, you know, shuffling and stacking up decks, all the kinds of crazy things that extra time that they waste with the extra shuffling because they don't deal deep enough into the deck. Why, what, what, what accounts for that resistance? It just seems like, you know, there's the, it's, they're just throwing away money. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's job security. And, and let me explain my answer. I've had people who've gone to some of my seminars, and they said, Bill, we agree with your math on this. We think this is, you know, we, we agree that we're getting more hands out, but how do we convince our boss? Now, think about this. An executive comes in and says, from now on, it's like cutting off two decks or a deck and a half and a six-deck cube. We're going to bring the cut card all the way back to half a deck. And for the first month, it looks good. But then normal statistical fluctuation drops the whole percentage. They don't win. They might get beat by one big player, no big deal. But the whole percentage drops, the win drops, and what's the first thing the executives above them do? They say, you know what, you move that cut card back and look what you've done. The person, the executive made the decision, made a good decision. The only trouble is the people above them don't understand uh, normal fluctuation. So the minute you hit a negative spot, you're in trouble. And I've actually seen a couple guys this happen to. So it's not something, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm, it's not theory. It's actual uh, fact. So most people in the business would rather keep their job. They don't, if they don't have to make a decision, they're not going to get in trouble. And unfortunately, industry forces them in that direction. Even though, I mean, it's most likely that it would go the other way. I know, but granted, there, you know, there will be those you know, odd months, and, 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 and I understand that. It just seems like somebody with some decision-making, not just decision-making, but, you know, at the owner level, whether it's a guy like, you know, George Malouf or somebody who understands 
you know, the gambling side of it and the numbers of it would say, you know, hey, let's let's do this. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to some of those kind of folks. You know, they, they understand those that kind of volatility, the fluctuations month to month, that even if you make a change that in the long run will be better, in the short run it's not. I just it just seems like in such a math dependent business for people to be math foolish is really foolish. I mean, I just don't I just don't understand that. But I mean, your explanation rings true. It just seems like somebody somewhere should be, you know, saying, "Hey, no way." But well, I just had a meeting with one of the major companies, gaming companies, and I talked to their uh, CEO and we had the same discussion. And when I got done, he looked at me and he goes, "God, I can see how that would happen." <laughs> and and the thing is it happens over and over and over again. And people they, nobody sweats the slots, of course, because it's a mechanical beast. But they do sweat the live table games, and they fall into the same premise. It's all mathematics. One of the things, and I apologize for those listeners that have already that have already uh, heard the the other show that that Bill did. But um, one of the things you talked about there is something that we've talked about in the past that made a a big splash when it first came out was this iPhone card counting application. Um, and so, first off, I, um, I'm curious, Bill, the risk of repeating yourself. What, what's your take on on that as a problem for a gaming establishment? Well, like I said to Dave in that class, and, and I tell people this all the time, I must have received – because what, what I do is I, I like to be the center of information. If you have a question, you're in the gaming business, you can email me, and I'll answer it. And I must have got – I'll bet 20 to 30 emails from different people asking me about this thing. Uh, the iPhone as a card counting device and as a threat to the bottom line of the casino, the, the iPhone is nothing but a toy. The problem was that information was handed out to the different licensees in the state of California by the, by the DOJ, Department of Justice, and then repeated by the Nevada Gaming Control Board. And when you get something like that from a regulatory agency, you take it seriously. And the, and the bad thing is that neither one of those agencies has anybody qualified that could analyze this correctly. Now, so I've talked to people and said, it's nothing but a toy. Don't worry about it. And they look, they, they listen, they stop for a second. They go, but how can that be? Because I got this information from the Gaming Control Board. That's the problem with, with coming out with that information. All it is is a toy. It's no threat. The only trouble is now people think it is. So well, I'm, well, that leads me to my next question, which is if let's, the iPhone's not a threat, but technology is constantly evolving. Um, you know, as long as there are casinos, there will be cheaters. As we look down the road, can we see what potential problems might be on the horizon? Are, are, are the next generation of gaming protection issues already beginning to bubble up? What do you see as the big problem that these people are going to have to deal with going forward? Well, you know, I wish I had that crystal ball going at my house <laughs> because it would, I'd, make, I'd make a ton of money. The thing is, is we've got to look and see what direction is gaming going in. It's going into more digital, more computerized. So. The big threats are going to end up in that area. And, of course, I'm not a computer expert. I look at some of the stuff, that they're, how they're attacking the tracking systems, like splitting cards and breaking the switches in the back of the player uh, tracking uh, uh, receptacle. And, I mean, it amazes me uh, that they came up with that. Um, 
So a lot of this stuff is going to be moving in that direction. At the same time, at the same time, we can't, it's like history. If you forget history, it'll repeat itself. And the thing is, is we got to go back and look at some of the older scams, and those will come back in some different form. You know, mark cards will come back in some different form. Uh, you know, something in, like dice fighting. Or, you, you know, one thing, one thing I want to say right now I think is going to come up in, in rear its ugly head is everybody's removing the box man off the crap table. I can't see why, why gaff dice won't come back, like uh, missed spots being put in the games. It may already be happening. We just haven't caught it yet. So the thing is, history does repeat itself. It's going to be more of a, a technical nature than it was, be, you know, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, states like Nevada are um, ha- Nevada has a large budget shortfall, and casino, even private casino companies, are are really hurting right now. As these people have less money to spend on game protection, and the regulators have less money to spend on investigating these things, uh, you know, are but are these budget cuts going to make it impossible for them to? Are we going to see a big delta between um, sophisticated cheaters and and um, people being able to catch up with them because there's not there's no money to make investments and in, in going after them. Well, you know, to be honest with you, the Gaming Control Board in Nevada plays more of a passive role. I know they've gone and they've, they've been proactive in the past, but face it, most of your game protection stuff is totally reactive. Um, I think where the big gap is going to be is that uh, there's going to be some people, you know, there's people out there that are a lot sharper than the, what, we, what we give them credit for, who come up with different ways of attacking it. I think where the problem is going to be is with some of the equipment, analyzing the, the shortcomings of it and uh, figuring out exactly what what's going on. And I really don't think it's anything to do with the budget cuts. And I don't I don't think any of the, the major casinos um, have cut back in areas where you know this this would be a, a serious problem. But then you never know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I can't like I said, it's, I wish I had that crystal ball sitting there. I just, you know, something just popped into my head that um, that I that I thought might be interesting to ask you. We we covered something a couple of weeks back, and you may have seen it because uh, it was in the Review Journal and, mm-hmm. and on the web. There was a p- poker player that was detained at the Eastside Cannery, or maybe it was the original cannery, I think. Uh, the original. Right, and he was detained. He was taking some photos, and he was detained by security. Um, and I believe, you know, they were saying that they were. They cited game protection as a potential as the reason for for uh, for keeping him. Would you see someone taking photos inside a casino as a threat? As someone that is a consultant on this, would you advise people to detain photo photographers? No, definitely not. And, and I'll tell you what we did at the Aladdin. We told the people to take pictures. You know, go ahead and take them, send them back to your friends, show them where you were. The whole idea of taking pictures to begin with, and there's, it's just it, it can become a, 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 a problem here in the future. But let me just explain. The, the whole reason taking pictures in the casino, or I should say prohibiting them, was because people were coming here with, like, their niece and their secretary and stuff like that, and they didn't want to be seen. They didn't want their wife to see their picture sometime later down the road, and that's why they try to get to protect the privacy of the players. Nowadays, we don't have to worry about that anymore because, face it, everybody's got a phone that has a camera in it now. So, I mean, how are you going to protect against that? Uh, as far as technology goes... That's another question. I mean, you might be able to come up with a, uh, with, you know, like the, let's just look at the iPhone uh, thing, that's a big snafu, but think about if you wanted to take pictures of the cards in Baccarat on the table because you're going to do a false shuffle. All you have to do is lift your phone up and click and take a picture now, see? So it, it, 
the thing is, is if a guy's taking pictures of murals on the wall, who cares? And I think they were totally wrong about what they did, the security in this matter. Uh, but as far as using it for other purposes, that might be another thing. Right. Uh, well, you know, it, it's that that story in particular really just um, really struck me. It was just it just seems so uh, over over the top. But um, you know, we discussed it a little bit, and, and who knows what the rest of the circumstances were. But it, it just seemed seemed pretty insane. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, gaming industry consolidation. But before we move on, I just want to give uh, anybody else the opportunity to throw in any last game protection questions that you guys might have before we move on. I have, uh, Hunter, I have uh, yeah. one uh, personal question I'd sort of like to ask. Go ahead. Uh, I'm curious what Bill thinks about uh, craps sharpshooting. You mean uh, rhythm rolling? <laughs> rhythm rolling and, you know, figuring out how to juice the bounce, you know, and how to get your numbers to hit. Is this all just a bunch of hullabaloo for the name of selling books, or is this a actual – factual thing. Are there really Roger Clemenses and Ron Guidry's out there with the dice? Well, you know, I've actually worked with a guy that did a little experimenting in this, and and we got to a point where we dropped the dice from about three or four inches off the table and couldn't control them. I'm not saying it can't be done. You know, the, the old adage is if you could throw a, if you practice enough, you could throw a key into a lot. Uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably a few people that are good enough uh, and in the right situations and the right type of table with the right type of padding and the, and the, uh, the you know, not as sharp diamond back pattern in the back of it um, could actually probably increase their chances of rolling numbers instead of sevens. As far as this being like on a new uh, era of card counting, it, I don't see that happening. I, I really think that it's a great idea to separate people from their money. Meaning, once you come to our seminar, and we'll teach you how to throw the dice the right way, because they go to the seminar, pay their money, throw the dice a few times, go out, take, a, you know, win once or twice, you know, get their nose up, and lose a bunch of times and quit. But I, you know, to me to say totally that there's nobody in the world that can do that, that'd be out of line. Okay, but to say that it's some type of technique that you can teach, you know. The, the the general population or even a a, a section a, a chosen section of the population I don't believe that I you know I just a uh, random question just popped into my head since since we're still on the topic uh, in terms of in terms of game protection what what's the most difficult game to protect in terms of the the table games that are out there what's what has the what's the most vulnerable or what's the most the biggest headache you know to tell you the truth the one that can be attacked in so many different ways is mini baccarat. And uh, everybody kind of like says, oh, it's blackjack, you know. But mini background, I mean, if you look at it, uh, the, the dimensions of the tables, especially these big sit-down tables, is great for past posting. The fact that you don't have to have cards in front of you, you can add and subtract bets. Um, the, uh, if, you, if the dealer is shuffling the cards, the incident of false shuffling, look how you know, rampant that's been. Um, Hand-mucking on, on the squeeze game, I mean, Every, it just seems like every possible scam has been done on this game, and then it's for big money. And in the past, nobody's really better than I when anybody won a lot of money on it. So I really think that's the, probably the, the, the number one game right there as far as uh, scams go. Of course, you know you can always throw blackjack into the mix because somebody can come in and count cards. But I think the, I think overall the uh, the um, 
And the big boy is Baccarat. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I think what I want to do is, is go ahead and move on and talk a little bit about uh, casino company consolidation. And, Bill, I'm actually curious, since you know you uh, you are a part owner um, of a strip resort, uh, what you may think about this. So let me just sort of set it up, and I'm going to ask a few questions. Um, you know, obviously, in the past uh, decade, we saw a pretty major consolidation of ownership on the Las Vegas Strip, um, basically down to two major operators with a handful of uh, other folks that operate you know, one or two properties. Um, at the time, I think uh, m- most of the media coverage, uh, especially the MGM Mirage Resorts merger, and even the Mandalay um, <clears throat> MGM Mirage merger, seemed pretty bullish on the, on the company's prospects. The Harris Caesars merger may have seemed like a little bit of a, a Me Too action, but um, I didn't hear a lot of um, throwing up of arms at the time. But now these companies are in a pretty serious pickle. Uh, they, some of them took on significant debt load, and um, maybe you know, in some cases, maybe not directly connected to to their uh, conglomeration, but um, they're in trouble. And the result may be a uh, <laughs> them divesting some properties, and we may have some more diversity of ownership on this strip. And so, I want to ask a couple of questions. And the first, the first thing is, is that a good thing? Um, is will Will Las Vegas, uh, will customers, will the state of Nevada, will they benefit from more diverse owners on the Las Vegas trip? And, Jeff, I'm going to ask you first and see what you think. You know, um, I mean, probably, I guess uh, it's always more consumer-friendly to have more competition. I don't think that in the long run – that you're likely to get more. I think that consolidation in almost every industry is the long-term economic trend, uh, economies of scale. Efficiencies typically outweigh the uh, the advantages of maneuverability, flexibility. You know, this is a time where we've seen, you know, when you did have big consolidation among two operators, but they were two operators who, you know, made – you know, some ill-timed decisions about, um, you know, Harris, you know, made a very risky leveraging decision going private and uh, taking on so much debt. MGM um, figured it could finance its uh, properties in an ongoing way instead of having that giant amount um, lined up in advance. Um, But I never felt that there was a uh, consumer problem uh, because you had really good competition for those companies. You had Wynn, which had one property and then grew to two on the strip, um, and it looks to grow more. You had a very strong competitor in Las Vegas Sands. You have uh, folks like George Maloof, who you know are strong and looking to grow. So you know, is it is it worrisome? What's worrisome about consolidation for me is. Um, the risk to the state of, you know, some really bad actor that would would lose their license. But I think the state would typically transfer ownership and operation to some licensable party like they did with the Stardust and keep those places open because the workers need to work and the state needs to get its mother's milk of uh, gaming tax money. So I'm, I don't think that, cons- that, you know, in the short term, you know, might it be a solution to these companies' problems? Yeah, a couple properties probably get peeled off. I would be surprised to see the companies broken into, you know, five or six 
casinos, uh, you know, or five or six entities each. But, you know, I mean, obviously we've seen Treasure Island sold. I've said I expect Bellagio, maybe the Rio, maybe, you know, maybe Mirage, and, you know, I stick to that. But I doubt that we're going to see long-term consolidation, deconsolidation as a process. I think consolidation is the long-term trend. Luckily, we don't have too many barriers to entry in Nevada other than money and licensability. So um, here, I don't think it's a worry. Other markets, it could be. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I'm curious, you know, it, it, when you were at the Aladdin, how, how big of a – how much of um, – how how much were you taking into account what your neighbors were doing, and did it make any difference to you if two properties were owned by the same owner uh, as far as, you know, you going up against these guys head-to-head? Well, you know, when we were there, we didn't have the – I mean, the, the MGM was one company, I think, that while we were there, they bought – you know, they were in half interest with New York, New York, and – and some of the other ones, I think probably Boyd had more, you know, fingers in the pie than anybody else around town. Carriers only had the one property on the strip. So it didn't come into play, but what we were up against was the big boys. And we had, in case we had a bankrupt hired property, and we actually had to get our own niche. We had to find our own niche and, and work it. But one of the things that I found that was to our benefit was we were a small property. So we were a lot more f- flexible in what we did and our ideas. Uh Today, I I really, you know, I hated to see this happen because it's gonna it's gonna really stub the toe in Nevada as far as you know for the next you know maybe even as much as ten years of, of growth and development because of uh, because now the emphasis is no longer on gaming in Las Vegas and they're seeing where all these the companies are doing the best are outside of Nevada are the ones that have diversified enough to where they can you know they've got the more the regional casinos. Uh, one good thing about this is, like, uh, one of the big boys, like Harris, I mean, they basically could tell the vendors what they wanted. You know, you we're selling our cards for 91 cents. Well, we're going to only pay 81. And I've heard a lot of incidences where they were actually trying to bully the different vendors and, and different people, and even their own people. I mean, they, they actually, uh, uh, you know, were able to knock down the salaries of their own people and, and this might be part of, uh, you know, your, your uh, economics of scale. But the problem with that is it, I think they got too big and they could take advantage of it. I think that breaking it down in a few other places will buy in now. There will be a little bit more balance in the strip. I think that's really good for Las Vegas going forward. Chuck, I'm going to put you on the spot because, you know, I know you follow consumer trends quite a bit as it relates to, uh, you know, where people are going and what's hot and what's not. What do you think about this? I mean, do you think as, as far as the people that you talk to and, and the people that visit Vegas tripping, do you think that it makes any difference to them? You know, I, I've been thinking about directly asking people whether or not they have a crap who owns a casino that they go visit. And I, I, I really honestly don't think so. I think some people have a degree of brand loyalty, uh, you know, things that they like. Uh, if, I'm sure as long as we all know, in my own personal taste is as long as I know that there is competition within a marketplace and that they are fighting and offering different things to, uh, to get my business, then, then I'm reasonably happy at that point to know that, that they're – you know the market is going to do what it does, uh, and I'm not going to be forced to deal with whatever, uh, like a situation like a pre-opening of Macau situation, where no matter what, you're going to visit a Stanley Ho 
casino, you know, and you're going to get whatever is there. You know, opening up to competition makes markets better. Uh, if there's no competition because there's only one or two large corporations, you know, the consumer definitely is going to lose. Whether or not, you know, I don't really hear hear people uh, complaining so much, uh, readers complaining to me about this stuff. You know, the, there's enough choice out there in the different uh, levels of people's budgets to, to sort of satisfy at this point. If, if like, MGM and Mirage – uh, MGM Mirage and Harris decided to merge, you know, then I think there would probably be a big complaint, you know. Just like just like when the Caesars and Harris thing went down, a lot of people complained. There was a lot, a lot of complaining. Like, ah, rah, rah, rah. So I guess the answer, you know, is uh, no. Um, well, you know, I, I don't hear a lot of it from my readers either, but it, it is interesting. There's a lot of, um, I, you know, as said, more competition is, seems like it, it would be would be would be better. And I like the idea of real bare knuckle competition. And you know, when, when Steve Wynn was on face to face with uh, John Ralston a couple weeks back now, and I think uh, to borrow his phrase, uh, you know, he thinks I think he said something along the lines of um, Las Vegas being at its best when these guys are really duking it out. And uh, you know, I see some truth in that. Uh, and you know, MG Mirage has has postulated that their individual companies sort of duke it out inside the corporate umbrella. Um, I you know, I that may be true to some extent, but I'm I'm not sure exactly how how true it may be. And and as Bill was uh, implying, sort of the Walmartization of uh, you know single monolithic vendor or customer being able to harass their vendors and drive down prices and and set the set a lot of the. Uh, <clears throat> Of the tone of the conversation, I, I don't know how how great I think that is, but we'll see what happens. Um, you know, MGM Mirage is uh, in deep trouble with um, with City Center and their financing situation, and the the rumors regarding what they may have to do. I've really reached a, a fever pitch this week again regarding them maybe selling some assets, and I, I'm curious that we're hearing um, again that the Mirage may be may be sold, and then alternatively. It seems like another option that they may be considering, and, and who knows how much of this is actually true, um, selling Beau Rivage or MGM Grand Detroit or both um, to raise some some cash. And I'm I'm curious, you know, what what would make more sense? What would be a better sale for them? Would they be better off selling the Mirage and and um, <clears throat> reducing their dependence on Nevada a little bit, or would they be better off getting rid of some of these other market properties? As you know, as as far as I can tell, they're in the they're at the top of both of those markets, Biloxi and, and Detroit. Would they would it be in their interest to to sell those properties at this point? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I could jump in on that. I think today it would make a lot of sense for them to reduce their exposure in the strip. Definitely, since this market is challenged. I think also, while we're talking about consolidation, national consolidation still makes a lot of sense. Having Outposts in a lot of different markets does a lot of things. First of all, it gives you a better feeder system to get people to the strip where you have the low tax rates and people can gamble a lot and it's better for the company because they're not taxed as much as in other states. You know, but it also gives you that diversification. So if things are still going great in Missouri but they're not going so great in Nevada, you've got a little bit of a fallback there. So I think you know probably they wouldn't want to sell the Detroit and Mississippi properties, but if those are the only ones they can sell and they need the money, they don't have much choice. Right. It's uh, <clears throat> They're definitely uh, in, a, in a tough spot at the moment. 
And uh, you know the the rumors for the uh, for regarding the Mirage really hit a very high level in in January, and and they seem to be ramping up again. But who knows? Maybe they uh, <clears throat> maybe they'll pull through and they'll end up uh, pulling it off. Their drama with uh, Dubai World seems to be uh, last week was almost it was almost like every single day there was some new uh, back and forth regarding uh, you know where how that was playing out. Hunter, um, I I think that. In terms of uh, you know of MGM Mirage and their need to sell, you know time is wasting, and they you know I think the potential buyers have been uh, getting all their ducks in a row. They're hoping you know the they also know the time is on their side, but um, you know the question is how much real competition is there for whatever properties MGM Mirage really wants to sell. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to see something sooner rather than later. You have licensing problems, um, and MGM has time constraints. So I don't think we're going to have to wait for long to get answers to these questions. Um, secondly, um, as in, uh, regarding what you asked Chuck about um, the consumer um, you know, consumers and the impact, uh, the impact of, you know, properties, you know, concentration of properties with a couple big owners. You know, 17 big casinos on the Strip are owned by um, two operators, although it, actually, it dropped to 16 with MGM selling Treasure Island, but they're about to open the Aria. But there are a bunch of other operators, and these aren't, you know, like this is a market with hotels with 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 rooms. You have big mega resorts, Planet Hollywood that isn't in that system, Venetian, Palazzo, Encore, um, Wynn Las Vegas at the lower end, Stratosphere, Sahara, um, you know, my favorite whipping boy, the Tropicana, um, and not to mention a bunch of, you know, and, and the Riviera and smaller properties. Um, so, you know, there, uh, there is, you know, I still think there's plenty of competition. And for its impact on consumers, heck, these big companies are competing among themselves. Um, MGM does not have sort of that unified uh operational system that Harris does and you know these places you know they have tens of hundred you know there's a hundred thousand rooms more and more that need to be filled each of these properties are three or four thousand rooms you know you can get a room at Monte Carlo for 50 bucks a night you can get a, these are places that were selling in the triple digits a couple of years ago and you can stay at really decent at you know excellent three and four star properties not to mention five star properties in the very low three digits um you know barely above a hundred bucks it's you know i mean so to you know we we have that monopoly power right now it's not but but right now there's no scarcity of rooms the demand is not enough to offset uh, you know, there's not that much demand, and there's and there um, is a huge supply, and so the consumers have the price, the uh, the buying power right now, and so you know, it, 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 is there a point at which um, there there could be a problem? Yeah, if demand rose a lot, I mean, just a whole lot, and the supply remained constant, then. You know, it is worrisome when a couple couple companies have pricing power, but you know, I don't know that we're ever we're going to see that on the strip. I'm not sure that we saw it in effect 
even two years ago when prices were so high. I don't think that was monopoly or oligopolistic pricing power. It was it was just the incredible demand. You had the crappy operators getting, you know, over triple digits on the weekend. The Riviera, you know, the, the Sahara. So if those places are capitalizing, it's not that it's a monopoly, it's just that there's a, a lot of demand. So I think this is the this is the golden era for consumers in modern Las Vegas and they should enjoy it while they while it lasts. Um but I certainly don't blame um, the concentration, you know, when uh, you know, I, I think it's just it just doesn't make sense to me to blame um, rates on on a monopoly. And that's not to say that has, you know, does. And I agree with Bill, where they will exert pressure is on their vendors, um, and they do have the power to do it. Just like Walmart could put the squeeze on every single company that, that provides for them. If you're a, if you're a big vendor in Las Vegas, do you want to give up seven resorts? No. Will you lower your price a little bit to make sure you keep them? Sure. Um, you know that's you know, and that's worrisome. The Gaming Control Board and Commission are supposed to keep an eye out for it. They've really demonstrated that they don't care because they don't consider the strip a distinct market. They 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 say, well, diluted among the 30 big locals casinos and you know mesquite and prim that there's no concentration in the market and if you look at the market like that um and certainly they'll even say the state or the national or the international market there's obviously no concentration so i don't think you can count on vendors getting protection from our state regulators since we're on the well said jeff um since we're on the since we've got city center in our city center in our sites and we have Bill on the phone. Uh, I'm actually curious, Bill, what do you think about City Center? I mean, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether this was, um, you know, looking back, a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Is, was was this a colossal mistake, or was is this just MJ Mirage being bit by some circumstances and bad timing? Well, you know, it, you know at the time when we decided to do it, this thing looked like it was a gold mine. And, you know, uh, Boyd was involved with, with their project on the other end of the strip, they bailed. Everybody basically laughed at them. I think if you remember uh, when that first happened, uh, you know, I think they're kind of like damned if they do and damned if they don't. And I think they figured the best way to do is go straight ahead. And to tell you the truth, uh, the only thing, the only way we're ever going to know how this is going to come out is just by sitting back and watching it. I, just, I can't even make a prediction one way or the other right now. Definitely. Well, City Center is going to be uh, a pretty impressive uh, opening the end of the year, uh, assuming that they get there. And I, I can't imagine a situation where they won't, uh, one way or another, even if they have to uh, sell the uh, Sphinx in front of the Luxor to get there. <laughs> you know, Hunter, one thing about it is anytime we open up a, a new big casino in this town, uh, the the sales machines go to work, the advertising's out there, and we see a boost in the in tourism, and you know, I mean, that's gonna that's actually gonna help the town when they do open. Yeah, I, I I would say though, and Bill, you're right. Back in the '89 when we had Excalibur Mirage, in '93 when we had Ti or Treasure Island and Luxor and MGM Grand, '99 when we had you know Bellagio, Mandalay, Paris, and Venetian. But you know, this last round, if you think of um, Palazzo and Encore. Um, it's like the recession, 
I think Trump that, I mean, you know, those were too damn expensive, two of the most expensive hotels to ever open on the Strip, and yet the buzz, and there was buzz. Wynn did his best to publicize Encore. You know, Sheldon Adelson did a, you know, what I would call a piss-poor job of um, promoting Palazzo. But taken together, those things did not impact um, visitation. Visitation has sunk repeatedly as those two properties opened. And those are two big casinos. Now, we have two even bigger ones opening up in Fontainebleau and and certainly City Center. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that those Trump – the additional capacity um, is going to be a negative, and I'm not sure that the the electricity that accompanies those two resorts are enough to overcome the recession. I hope it I hope it does, but you know, the, based on the last two, this Encore and Palazzo, I think I think that people should be a little worried. Well, yeah, I, I I agree with you on that. If you, uh, Jeff, you remind, once again reminded me. I keep, I always seem to forget that Fontainebleau is supposedly opening. Sometime. You know, we, we we had a talk hunter in the newsroom today. I, I I was telling Liz Benson. I was telling one of the editors on our Metro site. I said this is like the black hole of news. It opens six months from now. It's this giant second most expensive new resort to ever open in the city, and no one knows anything about it. It's it's huge. No one talks about it. No one, you know, they, they're, the, 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 the developer is very closed-mouthed. But this is a huge thing, and what do we know about the place? We don't know if they're, you know, they're, they're going to convert all what, all of what we're going to be its condos into, into hotel. We don't know, you know, what restaurants and retail are in the place. We don't know if they're sticking their IMAX in every hotel room like they did in Miami Beach. I mean, it's a good-looking building. But we don't know squat about it. I mean, it's just crazy. It's easy. I mean, I, I, I'm honestly, it's close. Covering the the um, Las Vegas market as closely as I do, I honestly do forget that it's opening so soon. Often, and that's uh, sad. It is. It is sad. And it, you know, it's it's. Is this a strategy on their part? Is this just a you know poorly managed media campaign? I don't know. I guess. You know, I guess we'll see. You know. I'm going to have to disagree with Jeff a little bit here. The, the Fontainebleau folks have actually been very uh, active in posting a lot of information to their website, believe it or not. You know, they list uh, you know, all the details there, and, uh, you know, they mention the number of the restaurants that are going to be there, and, and they talk about the IMAX, and, you know, you can go to the sales center and visit the rooms, and, yes, there will be IMAX in every room. Uh, you know, and they do. But, have but what restaurants are they? I mean, we're six months out. Well, I mean, when didn't announce the re- the restaurants at Encore until what two months before it opened? That's true, but contrast it with Aria and MGM Mirage. Yeah, well, they're really trying to you know sell this thing beforehand. You know, I, I'd say you know their PR machine isn't exactly together. I wouldn't say they're being tight lipped about the information because there is a lot of stuff on there. Uh, that, you, that you can kind of ferret out, but you have to go and download a bunch of PDFs and get out your magnifying glass to, <laughs> to, track, it, to track it all down. But, uh, you know, they, I think they're just not effective in the way that they are delivering their public relations. You know, they're not, you know, planting that thing out, you know, not announcing, hey, we got this, hey, we got that, hey, the restaurant, you know, this restaurant, the whole place changes every, you know, 15 minutes, you know, and that's like the big story for a day or two or three days. They're, they're not 
they're not maximizing the impact of this stuff. Well, and now uh, you look at the history, though, of Glenn Schaefer, who supposedly is operating this place for the Sofers, the Turnberry folks. Glenn Schaefer is, you know, pretty darn quotable. He's usually out there when he ran Mandalay Resort Group and Circus Circus for uh, Mike Ensign. You know, he was always out there talking. I mean, this is just a very strange situation. There are people who wonder if the place is going to open on time. They wonder what's going on with the condos. I mean, I... I mean, if it's a strategy, it's a, it, it is a unique one. Um, you know, I mean, you know, maybe. I mean, I, I shouldn't say unique because Palazzo is sort of like that. But at least, you know, at least in terms of how it was going to open. But you know, I mean, you know, and and that is good. You know, their website is good. And you know, I like Glenn Schaefer. I think he is a guy. And those former Mandalay folks who are somewhat involved here. Um, they they were you know he was a guy who on a small budget could get a big bang. I mean you look at what Mandalay Bay cost um, and, and and everything that's in it. It's a damn nice property. Um, I'm not I'm, so I'm not I'm not criticizing them and what they're building. I just I just think it's unbelievable that this close to a property opening, you know, the second most expensive one in the history of town. And nobody knows much about it. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe we know something about it, but I think compared to other ones, we don't know. You know, we know squat. Well, it'll definitely be interesting to see. I mean, they, they talk about having an uphill battle with that location and this economic climate. I mean, they really are going to have a, a tough time making that work. I would actually like to know what Bill thinks about that. Um, Bill, how important is location and proximity and foot traffic, you know, in the resorts? They're so big. Are they self-contained enough so that, you know, location is less significant than it used to be? Or, you know, what's your take on that North Strip location Fontainebleau has? I mean, it's not too far from Wynn and Encore and Palazzo and, Treasure Island um, and and the Fashion Show Mall. Um, well, you know, what's your take on location as far as Fontainebleau compared to City Center? Well, you know, I have to go along with the old adage: is location, location, location. Um, the uh, Las Vegas Convention Center does their uh, annual poll, and I don't know what it's been for the last couple of years, but it's still they're still saying that people will spend you know a large amount of their time outside their hotel, walking around and going into other clubs. And, and I, you know, I'll tell you what, if you've got a self-contained, I mean, it's not like a club med, but if you get a self-contained place here in town, they're still going to go out and look around because you're in Las Vegas. You want to look around and see what's going on. And, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I, it's, I think that it's natural for people to kind of wander around. I don't, I don't think they're going to go more than a few miles away from their from their casino, but, you know, still, I, I think that they're going to get walk-in traffic as much as, as the people there are going to walk around. I think it's kind of a you know exchange. Do you think Fontainebleau has a severely disadvantaged location compared to City Center? You know, boy, you know, at one time they were talking about the MGM being at a disadvantage of being at the wrong end of the strip, and then all of a sudden the wrong end of the strip is on the opposite side. You know, i tell you what, I... I don't know. I mean, I, I think that you probably have enough activity up there with the, with the death of the, well, I shouldn't say the death, but the, the putting the stops to the, the Boyd project over there, I think probably hurt Fontainebleau. But, uh, you know, you may be right. You might be on the wrong side of the strip now. That might just be a disadvantage. I mean, you know, to me, that win 
Encore Venetian Palazzo Corner is a pretty powerful location on its in and of itself. City Center Bellagio, pretty da- and and Caesar's Palace, a pretty nice collection of properties. But you know, I I don't look anywhere on the Strip and say, God, that's a that's a terrible spot. I think, you know, and you know, from Fontainebleau down to Mandalay Bay, you know, the wherever you stay, there's some pretty nice properties, pretty darn close to you. Well, I think I think the limitations are the strip, and you're right. I mean, where are you going to put the hotel? I think anything that says strip works. Anything north of the Sahara is in trouble, of course. But uh, the rest of them, I mean, I just can't see where, you know, uh, it's going to be real detrimental to be in one location between Sahara and, uh, and say, uh, well, I almost Sunset Road now. Yeah, I just wonder if it does it make a difference if you throw in the customer the customer profile that they're looking for. I mean, they're not looking for any old customer; they're looking for higher end customers to spend a bunch of money. Are they less willing to hike up and be in the you know Riviera Sahara neighborhood, or than they would be to you know be next door to Bellagio? Well, those people aren't hiking when they arrive. True. They're limoing or they're taxiing or the, you know I mean they they only have to hike once they're checked in and go to other places. You know, if they, you know, people, it's not that far from Encore. I mean, what's the distance from Fontainebleau? It's just, you know, the the old uh, Silver City and 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 the Riviera is the, you know, is the gap, and uh, and and that's not much of a gap. Um, you know, would it be better if Echelon was open eventually? Sure, but I don't know. I think I think uh, it's. I don't think it's too bad for them. Well, hopefully for. Uh, yeah, I, you know, for the Encore opening, I stayed at Circus Circus, which is essentially the same uh, sort of distance. And I walked back and forth to Encore three, four, five times a day, you know, and it was really no big deal. You know, it was actually a nice kind of pleasant walk. It's not all that far, but you're walking through – you're not walking in front of the Bellagio and watching the fountains go by. You're walking past, you know, liquor stores and strip malls, but maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> there's, a hey, there's a good dim sum place at that corner. Is that place any good? That's good to know. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up and close it out. We're getting close to an hour here, and um, I want to make sure that we let everybody go. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here. And before I uh, before I say goodbye, I want to let, let the listeners know that if you guys want to submit questions to potentially be asked on the show, um, of course, you can always leave them in the comments on the uh, on the posting. There, I will definitely read those and get them into the show. Alternatively, if for some reason you don't want to leave it in a comment, you can always email them to editor at ratevegas.com, and I'll make sure I put a post uh, a link in the notes. Um, but uh, we had a lot of fun answering your questions, and we can just you know make that a regular thing, uh, put it <clears throat> integrated into the show on a regular basis. So always feel free to leave those whenever you. Uh, Whenever you see fit. All right, so I'm going to go around the table and uh, let the um, guests <laughs> tell you guys where they can track you down. So, Jeff Simpson, where can people find you? In business, Las Vegas, uh, dot com, And I'd like to thank Bill also for uh, taking the time out of his day to come and uh, hang out with us. Thanks, Bill. Well, thank you. Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people track you down? You can find me, as always, at gaming.unlv.edu with the serious stuff and then for a more lighthearted look at the financial Armageddon that's upon us at diascast.com. <laughs> Chuck Monster, where can people track you down? Vegastripping.com. 
And Mr. Bill Zender, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Um, for those that uh, that enjoyed it, I would recommend Bill's book, Casinoology. I'll make sure I link to it in the post. You can get it on Amazon. I'm sure the Huntington Press website has it. You can even get it for your Kindle. Um, and uh, to hear more of Bill and his uh, and his talk, you should go and check out that UNLV podcast that we referenced, and I'll make sure that's linked up as well. Um, so thank you, Bill. We really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. No, it was a great time. Thanks a lot. Man. All right, gentlemen. Oh, absolutely. Gentlemen, have a good weekend, and I'll talk to you soon.